Always double confirm what you think you already know. This is something that I run into time and time again as I make little slip-ups in speaking and in writing. In my last episode, I said that the E writer, E as in Elohist, uh, had written chapter one in Genesis, but that was a mistake on my part, as it was the P writer, P as in priestly. Both writers address God as Elohim. But I took the time to listen back to that episode in my car the other day to see what the sound quality was like, and when, and when I heard myself say that it was the e-writer, a little alarm went off in my brain as I thought, oh, that's not right. It's a simple mistake, but it's the kind of mistake that I'm attempting to point out in this podcast, that subtlety matters, nuance matters, information matters, a subtle misrepresentation of the facts can affect generations of people around the globe for thousands of years. So, I will always be open and honest when I have misspoken or mistakenly misrepresented the facts and ideas that I'm presenting. I'm a dumb blonde, but I'm an honest one. As I sat one evening with my laptop open in my studio, ready to continue writing this episode, I accidentally fell asleep. When I awoke, I observed that it had felt like I had only closed my eyes for a brief second, but around 15 to 20 minutes had passed. What had occurred during those 20 minutes that I had seemingly lost? Perhaps anything perhaps everything. Because of my vanity, I was reminded of a song I had written for the first album of my band, Subterranean Howl, and the song was entitled The Brink. Within that song, I meditated on someone losing their reality and what could be an anchor for that person if everything that they had believed in wasn't true. A few of the lyrics are as follows. If every word that you spilt built this lie and my mind gets blurry, if the names on my family tree look like strangers so alien, if the days have corrupted my files, for right now is my only place, I can only move through space and time. I can only move through space and time. That was the line I was thinking of. I can only move through space and time. Seems obvious. What else is there to move through? I decided to listen to the song as I couldn't actually, in the moment, remember most of the lyrics. As I listened, I noticed a blinking light in my studio that, for only a measure or two, appeared to keep time with the music and then drifted off again in its own tempo. It made me think of pathways, how my path sometimes crosses the path of someone else, and for the briefest of moments in the history of the universe, it feels as if I am in sync with that person. 
I thought of the path of the earth as it revolves around the sun, but does it really revolve around the sun, or is it only doing so now, in this briefest of moments in the history of the universe, and its true path goes somewhere else? What if the nature of everything in the universe that we have observed is not its true nature at all, but we have only crossed paths with the universe for such a brief moment in history that it appears to be in sync with our observations. Imagine a person that you see for just one day out of every year, but on that one day they are sick. After a few years of such interactions, you might conclude that they are a sickly person, someone always in poor health. But what if for the rest of those 364 days out of the year, that person was in peak health. Now, our observations are pure coincidence and are not representative of the reality of that person's life. I thought of quantum entanglement, quantum tunneling, and virtual particles, and pondered whether anything in my life has existed in its true nature at all, or if we have only blipped here for the briefest of moments before disappearing. Thinking of this reminded me of one of my favorite books, The Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut, with its opening line, Billy Pilgrim has come unstuck in time. Our latest quantum theories might suggest that space and time do not exist at all, at, at least not in the way we have believed them to. Quantum tunneling leaves us without barriers, while quantum entanglement creates a possibility that none of the consequences of our actions have been decided yet. Such ideas could make gods of us all, or perhaps rule all gods out of existence. It was a lot for a 15 to 20 minute nap. The character in my song, The Brink, is suffering from a metaphysical crisis, but proposes a practical solution. In the chorus he sings, I will take this camera and steal part of your soul and keep it here with me. Instead of reaching to the heavens and crying, Jesus, take the wheel, he grasps at humanity to keep him grounded, a keepsake, a photo of a loved one, because loving God could never replace loving a human being. What good is heaven, after all, without people? When my hero, Mr. Rogers, takes us to the land of make-believe, we always return to reality. We don't confuse reality with make-believe. Make-believe is a great way to tell stories and learn lessons, but we don't take it literally. We know that King Friday, Daniel Tiger, and Lady Elaine, wonderful as they might be, are fictional characters, all given voice by Fred Rogers himself, a man of divine character who teaches us kindly truths through fiction. There are many times in our lives, however, when we need to return from the land of make-believe. We need to stop pretending, which Mr. Rogers demonstrated by bringing us back to reality at the end of each episode. I cannot speak to people of other traditions, so today I speak specifically to my own. 
and hope that my message is universally received. Christians, come back from the land of make-believe. Stop pretending that as followers of the Judeo-Christian tradition that we hold some kind of moral high ground over the rest of humanity that our ways are better than other people's ways. Time and again, Israelite and Christian peoples and cultures have proven themselves to be inferior to other cultures in many, if not every way. The ancient Israelites were not more learned, more intelligent, more enlightened than their neighbors. Israel did not treat its subjects better, were no more kind to their neighbors than the surrounding nations. In many ways, Israel was constantly inferior to most of the nations around them. An unbiased reading of the Old Testament reveals an Israel with a terrible case of small dog syndrome, massively inflating their size and wealth in an attempt to keep up with the Joneses. Here's an example. The Bible claims Solomon, the great king, had 1,000 wives, but the entire population of Jerusalem at the time could not have been more than 2,000. Half of the population of Jerusalem was Solomon's wives. This is what the authors of the Bible want us to believe, and the literalist Christian today passively reading the Bible instead of actually studying it doesn't ever question it, nor does the literalist Christian question the Bible's claims that all of the neighboring nations around Israel were evil or at least unclean and unfit to be the chosen people of God. But ancient Israel did not hate a nation like Babylon because the Babylonians were so much worse than them. In fact, by most every account, the Babylonians were a superior society to Israel. The Code of Hammurabi predates the Law of Moses by 300 years, causing many scholars to believe that Israel kind of copied and modified Hammurabi, as there are so many similarities. Perhaps the most famous part of the Law of Moses is an eye for an eye. But the Code of Hammurabi already has this law 300 years earlier. By modern standards, both sets of laws have different strengths and weaknesses in fairness, justice, punishment, and mercy. But both sets of laws demonstrate that Babylon and Israel were both concerned with basically the same things and agreed in terms of ethics and morality much more than they disagreed. The height of Israel is considered to be the reign of King Solomon. Archaeological finds of late have found evidence that Solomon was indeed a great king and took on large building and restoration projects in amazing Phoenician architectural styles throughout Israel. The extent of his riches and power, however, are laughably exaggerated in the biblical text. This does not make the reality of the Age of Solomon any less impressive from a historical and archaeological perspective, but we need to level out our expectations of what the small and largely insignificant nation of Israel was capable of. The height of Babylon could be considered King Nebuchadnezzar II, and I know different people pronounce that differently. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, a lot of people say. Basically, he's the king during uh, the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. 
Babylon during this time was the largest city in the world at around 200,000 people of various nationalities living together. Compare that to Solomon's xenophobic Jerusalem of no more than 2,000. Who would you consider a greater ruler? Consider also that both nations fell very quickly after their heights and the deaths of their great kings. Egypt rampaged through and leveled almost all of Solomon's accomplishments after his death, and Cyrus of Persia, the Messiah of Israel, crushed Babylon shortly after Nebuchadnezzar. This should give our decadent United States pause as history is replete with empires that crumble at their height. To the credit of our decadent United States, Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, which eventually led to the U.S. dropping two atomic bombs on Japan. On the other side of the world, we destroyed Nazi Germany, including the bombing of Dresden, which was possibly more destructive than an atomic bomb. I say to our credit because both Japan and Germany are two of our greatest allies today. We don't continue to demonize those nations the way Israel and then Christians demonize Babylon, even though Japan and Germany were both guilty of war crimes that were more than likely far worse than Babylon could ever even imagine. Still, Babylon did sack Jerusalem and they defiled the temple. They did not cruelly mass-murder and enslave the Israelites, however, as Nebuchadnezzar II wanted a healthy Israel vassal state to help boost the weakening Babylonian economy. Just read the book of Daniel to see how good and free life in exile generally was for Israel in Babylon, and then compare that to Israel's treatment of the Midianites in Numbers 31. Yahweh commands Israel via the prophet Moses to kill every Midianite man, woman, and child except the 12,000 young virgin girls who would be distributed throughout Israel, undoubtedly becoming slaves and concubines to the depraved Israelites. We should assume that these girls were somewhere between the ages of 13 to 18, maybe 12 to 18, as calling them virgins denotes that they were sexually mature but had not yet been married off. We shudder to imagine the fate of these orphan teenage girls and further shudder at how many prepubescent children were slaughtered. We're talking children here, folks. Israel, by their own record, was more cruel in battle with their enemies than Babylon ever was to Israel. If we were to tell the tales of ancient Israel but leave out the names, we would never guess that these are God's chosen people. Please don't take that as anti-Semitic. I am simply leveling the playing field as I remain unconvinced in a God who plays favorites. So why did Israel hate Babylon? Why so many grievances that extend even to the writings of the early Christians? hundreds of years after Babylon's fall to Persia. Israel hated Babylon because Babylon had conquered Israel and made them a vassal state. But uh, uh, wait a minute. Uh, remember that story from our last episode about Israel and the Moabites? 
the Moabites were a vassal state of Israel who fought and won their independence at great personal cost to their king, who sacrificed his son to the Moabite god Marduk in order to win the war against Israel and their god, Yahweh. Now, come on, Eli. In that story, the Moabites practiced human sacrifice to win favor with their god and overcome their enemies. How can we side with a pagan religion that practices human sacrifice? Well, we seemingly forget what is the exact premise of the Christian religion. A human sacrifice to a god who demands a human sacrifice. Nothing less would satisfy the Christian God than a human sacrifice. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The Moabite king, Mesha, loved his people the same way. I know that many will be offended by this, but we need to cut the crap. No more BS, no more lying to ourselves. Our so-called Christian virtues have not made us better than the atheist or the heathen. The Buddha lived 600 years before Jesus and taught roughly equivalent things about good intentions, good actions, doing no harm, treating one's neighbor as oneself, etc. So to claim that Jesus brought to the world some unique truths is simply nonsense. Buddhism was way ahead of Christianity, and Buddhism's teachings are often more profound and more universal in nature than Christianity's. I do not want to discredit the many good Christians who have strived throughout history to carry on the actual teachings of Jesus, but the fact of the matter is that Christianity has been so successful in the same way that the Nazi party was so successful. Sensationalist propaganda and murdering en masse its dissentors. My dear fellow Christian, I know I have offended you. I, I meant to. It's cruel, I know, but I had to get your attention somehow. But I haven't said these things to dissuade you from believing in Jesus, only the lies that continue to be told about Jesus, particularly those that attempt to dehumanize or belittle others and to seek power over them. I am here inviting us to all stop lying to ourselves, and in this way to better appreciate the goodness of other peoples and traditions, both the faithful and the faithless. In conversation with a loved one last year, the topic of the U.S. being a Christian nation arose. They were on the side of our nation being founded on Christian principles, and you can probably guess that I dismissed that notion promptly. George Washington himself endorsed a peace treaty with Tripoli, which specifically states, quote, The government of the United States is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion, unquote. This should end the debate right here. There's no argument left. And yet we continue to have this debate. Why the debate? Because Christians want to retain their foothold on power. The idea of white Christians becoming a minority in the United States sends shivers down their spine. I would not have any religion grasping at power, but I'm perfectly at ease with a Christian minority. 
Let reason, justice, and mercy be our guiding stars, not Jesus, not Allah, not Yahweh, not the Buddha. Let us only appeal to our humanity, and by doing so, access a better divinity. The deification of people and ideas propping up a person or a nation or a set of writings or traditions above all others has been incredibly detrimental to our development as individuals, neighbors, communities, and allies. When we deify an individual or group and then have different interpretations of what they did and said, we feel as if everything is on the line. Our religion, our nation, our way of life, everything is at stake because we can't imagine a world in which our founders are not sacred, holy, and correct about everything, no matter how long ago or the culture in which they lived. Instead of deification, I vote for humanization, a return from the land of make-believe to a world populated by people of bias and extreme imperfection, but who can recognize that each of us are here for such a brief moment in the history of the universe that we could not possibly understand the nature of our reality. Does this path I have described feel foreign? Does it feel outside of the reality that we are living in, a reality in which there must be a definite right and wrong? In an eternal and infinite universe, are there not an infinite number of paths to explore? Why so much fear to leave the one we are on? We should at least consider that these iron rods that we have clung to for safety might be but virtual particles blinking in and out of existence, and we only thought they were firm and unchanging because of our extremely short lifespans, which don't allow for an eternal perspective of the nature of the universe. Yet we are extremely reluctant to admit that we know virtually nothing and to try something different from the path we have been on. Why so much fear of being wrong? Is your God so stifling that he would have you abandon all curiosity? While visiting some friends last year, all of whom had grown up in the Mormon church, my own religion, someone offered a toast. This person no longer associates themselves with Christianity of any kind, but they stood up with a shot of whiskey in their hand and offered an earnest, sober toast. To growing up Mormon, they exclaimed. Other glasses of whiskey clanged together, and everyone drank an appreciative drink, a drink of thankfulness to the old path that had led to the new path. You see, the abandonment of a path does not necessarily constitute a hatred or a distrust or any other negative connotation for the old path. We can always be grateful for the old path that led us to the new path for all of the experiences that we had and the things we learned along the way. And when we arrive at our next intersection, we can look back with a thankful heart 
for the ways in which our current path has prepared us to turn on to the next one.